Section 10 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 37, Screw Thread Cutting, by the Master Screw Method, since 1480, by Edwin A. Battison. Among the earliest known examples of screw-thread cutting machines are the screw-cutting lath of 1483, known only in pictures and drawings, and an instrument of the traverse spindle variety for threading metal, now in the Smithsonian Institution, dating from the late 17th or early 18th century. The author shows clearly their evolution from something quite specialized to the present-day tool. He has traced the patents for these instruments through the early 1930s, and from this research we see the part played by such devices in the development of the machine tool industry. The author, Edwin A. Battison, is Associate Curator of Mechanical and Civil Engineering in the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of History and Technology. Directness and simplicity characterize pioneer machine tools because they were intended to accomplish some quite specialized task, and the need for versatility was not apparent. History does not reveal the earliest forms of any primitive machines, nor does it reveal much about the various early stages in evolution toward more complex types. At best, we have discovered and dated certain developments as existing in particular areas. Whether these forms were new at the time they were first found, or how widely dispersed such forms may have been, is unknown. Surviving evidence is in the form of pictures or drawings, such as the little-known screw-cutting lath of 1483, shown in das mittelalterliche Hausbuch. This lath shows that its builder, had a keen perception of the necessary elements, reduced to bare essentials, required to accomplish the object. Present are the coordinate slides often credited to Henry Maudslay. His slides are not, of course, associated with the spindle. Neither is there any natural law which compels them to guide the tool exactly parallel with the axis of revolution. In this sense, the screw-cutting lath in the housebook is superior because it is in harmony with natural law, and can generate a true cylinder, whereas Maudslay's lath can only transfer to the work whatever accuracy is built into it. In principle, this machine, shown in the housebook, is very advanced, as we see when we follow the design through to the present time. The artist whose drawings give us our only knowledge of the machine himself was obviously not very familiar with the details of its function. Reference to figure 1 shows that the threads on the lead screw and on the work wind in opposite directions. This must be an error in delineation, since the two are closely coupled together without any intervening mechanism, so that the only possible result of the work must be a thread winding in the same direction as on the original screw. The work also is shown threaded for its entire length. This cannot be accomplished with any one location of the cross slide. We are left with the question of whether this slide was used in two locations or whether the artist 
possibly working from notes or an earlier rough sketch, fail to show an unthreaded portion on one end or the other of the work. Of at least equal importance with the lead screw and work in their relationship to each other is the tool support, with its screw-adjusted cross-slide. Just how this was attached to the frame of the machine so that it placed the tool at a suitable radius is again a questionable point. The very well-developed cutting tool is sharpened to a thin, keen edge, totally unsuited for cutting metal, but ideal for use on a softer, fibrous substance, undoubtedly wood in this instance. Unfortunately, the angle at which the artist chose to show us this cutter is not a view from which it is possible to judge whether or not the tool has been made to conform to the helix angle of the thread to be cut. This cross-slide, in conjunction with the traversing work spindle, gives us a machine having two coordinate slides yielding the same effect as the slide rest usually attributed to Henry Maudsley at the end of the 18th century. Actually, an illustration of coordinate slides independent of the spindle had been published as early as 1569 by Besson, and knowledge of them widely disseminated by his popular work on mechanics. These slides are shown as part of a screw-cutting machine, with a questionably adequate connection, by means of cords, between the master screw and the work. It was the author's pleasure, recently, to obtain for the Smithsonian Institution and identify a small, nicely-made brass instrument, which had been in two collections in this country, and one collection in Germany, as an unidentified locksmith's tool. This proved to be an instrument of the traverse spindle variety for threading metal. Fortunately, all essential details were present, including a cutter. This instrument was identified by the signature Manuel Vetsky, Augsburg. The Vetskys were a well-known family of gunsmiths and mechanics in Augsburg through several generations. Two bore the given name Emanuel. The earlier was born in 1678 and died in 1728. He was quite celebrated in the field of rifle-making and became chief of artillery to the Landsgrave of Hesse Castle shortly before his death in the 51st year. Little is known of the later Emanuel Vatsky, except that he was at Augsburg in 1740. Tentative attribution of the instrument has been made to the earlier Emanuel chiefly on the basis of his recognized position as an outstanding craftsman. In several respects, this little machine differs from its predecessor of the Haugsburg, as might be expected when allowance is made for the generations of craftsmen who undoubtedly worked with such tools over the roughly 200 years of time separating them. Another factor to consider when comparing these two machines is that one was used on metal, the other probably only on wood. Therefore, it is not surprising to find on the later machine an outboard or tailstock support for the work. The spindle of this support has to travel in unison with the work-driving spindle so that it is not an unexpected discovery to find that it is spring-loaded. Figure 5 shows how this spring may be adjusted to accommodate various lengths of the work by moving the attachment screw to various holes in both the spring and in the frame. Also visible in the same illustration is a rectangular projection at the other end of the spring, which engages a mating hole in the tailstock spindle to prevent its rotation. 
Figure 6 shows the traversing spindle and nut removed from the machine. Provision has been made for doing this so easily that there is every reason to believe that originally there were various different spindle and nut units which could be interchangeably used in the machine. Additional evidence tending to support this concept exists in the cutting tool, which must have been intended for serious work, as it has been carefully fitted in its unsymmetrical socket. The cutting blade of this tool, which works with a scraping rather than a true cutting action, is too wide to form a properly proportioned thread when used with the existing lead screw. This may well indicate that the tool was made for use with a lead of coarser pitch, now lost. Perhaps the most startling feature of this machine, when compared with the machine of the housebook, is the absence of a cross-slide for adjusting the tool. Possibly this can be explained by the blunt scraping edge on the tool. In actual use recently, to cut a sample screw, using a tool similar to the one found in the machine, it was found advantageous to be free of a cross-slide, and thus be able to feed the tool into the work by feel, rather than by rule, as would be done with a slide rest. In this way, it was possible to thread steel without tearing, as the cutting pressure could readily be felt and the tool could release itself from too heavy a cut. Size on several screws could be repeated by setting the tool to produce the desired diameter when its supporting arm came to rest against the frame of the machine. The screws used in the machine itself were apparently made in just such a way. They were not cut with a die, as the thread blends very gradually into the body of the screw, without the characteristic marks left by the cutting edges of a die. Threads cut with a single point tool controlled by a cross slide usually end even more abruptly than those cut by a die, while it could be quite simple with a machine of the nature we are considering to bring the thread to a gentle tapering end, as seen in figure 8, another view of the screw, A, in figure 3, by gradually releasing the pressure necessary to keep the tool cutting as the end of the thread was approached. That machines of this general type having the lead screw on the axis of the work were competitive with other methods and other types of machines over a long period of time may be seen from figures 9 and 10. The machine, left front in figure 9, and in more intimate detail in figure 10, can be seen to differ little from that shown in Das Mitteralterli Hausbuch of 1483. The double work support is, of course, a great improvement, while the tool support is regressive, since it lacks a feed screw. The development of engineering theory, coupled with the rising needs of industry, particularly the advent of the Industrial Revolution, brought about accelerated development of screw-cutting laths, through the combination of screw-cutting machines with simple laths, as seen in Figure 9, and in detail in Figure 11. One important advance shown here is driving the machine by means of a cord or band, so that any means of rotary power could be applied, not just hand or foot power. Of greater interest and technical importance to this study is the provision seen to better advantage in figure 11 for readily changing from one master lead screw to another. This has already been achieved in the manual Wetzky machine, as far as versatility is concerned, although not in quite such a convenient way. Figure 12. The headstock of another and more advanced lath, 
than shown in figures nine and eleven but of the same type shows keys d each of which is a partial nut of different pitch to engage with a thread of mating pitch the dotted lines in figure thirteen show the engaged and disengaged positions of one of those keys and figure fourteen shows the spindle with the various leads c at d is a grooved collar to be engaged by the narrow key shown in operating position at the left in figure twelve for the purpose of controlling the endwise movement of the spindle when used for ordinary turning instead of thread cutting in return for greater convenience and freedom from the expense of the many separate spindles as typified by the vetsky machine a sacrifice has been made in the length of the thread which can be cut without interruption this reduction in the length that could conveniently be threaded was no great drawback on many classes of work this can be realized from figure sixteen which shows a traverse spindle lath headstock typical of the mid-nineteenth century during the years intervening between the machines of figures twelve and sixteen the general design was greatly improved by removing the lead screws from the center of the spindle this made possible a shorter more stiffer spindle and supported both ends of the spindle in one frame or headstock rather than in separate pieces attached to the bed the screws are now mounted outside of the spindle bearings one at a time while the mating nuts were cut partially into the circumference of a disc which could be turned to bring any particular nut into working position as required with this arrangement a wide variety of leads either right or left hand could be provided and additional leads could be fitted at any future time screw cutting laths of this design were popular for a very long time with instrument makers and opticians who had little need to cut screws of great length the demands of expanding industry for greater versatility in the production of engineering elements late in the eighteenth century set the stage for the evolution of more complex machines tending to place the threaded spindle laths in eclipse maudley's laugh of seventeen ninety seven through eighteen hundred appeared at this time when industry was receptive to rapid innovation unfortunately the gearing which once existed to connect the headstock spindle with the lead screw has long been lost at this time it is quite difficult to say with certainty whether the original gear set offered a variety of ratios as was true of slightly later mosley's laths or a fixed ratio the plausibility of the fixed ratio theory is supported by the very convenient means seen in figure fifteen for removing the lead screw in preparation for substitution of one of another pitch all that is required is to back off its supporting center at the tailstock end and withdraw the screw from its split nut and from the driving clutch near the headstock this split nut also would have to be changed to one of a pitch corresponding to that of the screw while more expensive than a solid nut it neatly circumvents the need and saves the time involved to reverse the screw in order to get the tool back to the point of beginning preliminary to taking another cut david wilkinson's laugh of seventeen ninety eight which was developed in rhode island at the same time shows the same method of mounting and driving the master screw at least in the united states this method of changing the lead screw instead of using change gears 
remained popular for many years. Example of this changeable screw feature are to be found in the laths constructed for the pump factory of W. N. B. Douglas Company, Middletown, Connecticut, in the 1830s. Middletown, at that time, one of the leading metal working centers in one of the chief industrial states, has been for many years the site of Simeon North Arms Factory, which rivaled Whitney's. In this atmosphere, it is reasonable to expect that machinery constructed by local mechanics, as was the custom in those days, would reflect the most accepted refinements of machine design. Roughly twenty years later, Joseph Nason of New York patented the commercially very important Fox Brassworkers Lath. While this does have a ratio in the pair of gears connecting the work spindle and master screw, it is clear from the patent that various pitches are to be obtained by changing screws, not by changing gears. The patent sums it up as follows. A nut upon the end of the stud is unscrewed when the guide screw is to be removed or changed. The two wheels should have in their number of teeth a common multiple. They are seldom or never removed, and their diameters are made dissimilar only for the purpose of giving to the guide screw a slower rate of motion than that of the mandrel, whereby it may be made of coarser pitch than that of the screw to be cut and its wear materially lessened. The introduction of gearing between the spindle and the lead screw, for whatever purpose, could not help but introduce variable factors caused by inaccuracies in the gears themselves and in their mounting. These were of little consequence for common work, particularly when coupled to a screw which itself was of questionable accuracy. The increasing refinements demanded in scientific instruments and in machine tools themselves after they had reached a relatively stable form dictated that attention be dedicated to improve accuracy of the threaded components. An attack on this problem, which interestingly reverts to the fundamental principle of motion derived from a master screw without the intervention of other mechanisms, is covered by a patent issued to Charles Vader Vord, one-time superintendent of the Waltham Watch Company. The problem is well stated in the patent. This invention relates to the manufacture of leading screws to be used for purposes requiring the highest attainable degree of correctness in the cutting of the screw threads of said screw, as, for example, in machines for ruling lines in glass plates to produce refraction. Gratings for the resolution of the lines of the solar spectrum, such machines being required to rule many thousands of lines of an inch of space by a marking device, which is reciprocated over the glass plate and is fed by the action of a leading screw after the formation of each line. Great difficulty has been experienced in constructing a leading screw for this and other purposes in which the thread is so nearly correct as to produce no perceptible variation in the microscopic spaces between the ruled lines or gratings. Various causes prevent the formation of a thread on the rod or a blank, which is absolutely uniform and accurate from end to end of the rod. Among other causes are the variations of temperature from time to time, the imperfections of the operating leading screw, the springing of the leading screw and of the rod that is being threaded, and other unavoidable causes, all of which, although apparently trivial and producing only slight variations in the thread at different parts of the rod or blank, are of sufficient moment to be seriously considered when a screw of absolute accuracy is desired.
It is interesting to note in figure 19 that van der Voorde's machine, to avoid the problems outlined in his patent, has returned to a starkly simple design. We are not told, however, how he originated this master screw, which is used to produce the accurately threaded workpieces. Later generations, in the search for ever greater accuracy, also returned to the fundamental simplicity of a master screw, as we shall see when we consider the refinements in mechanism necessary to the extended development of the automobile and the airplane. As the power and speed of automobiles and aircraft increased, critical parts became more highly stressed. Gears and threaded parts were particularly troublesome details of the mechanism because of the stresses concentrated in them and, in the case of gears, because of the internal and external stresses originating in minute deviations from the ideal of tooth form and spacing. The problems were not entirely new, but had hitherto been solved by increasing the size of the parts an avenue of limited utility to designers in the field where total weight as well as the effects of mass and inertia are so important. By making these parts of heat-treated steel, the strength could be made suitable while the size and mass of the parts were kept within bounds. The necessary processes of heat-treating were not always applicable to finished parts, as they sometimes destroyed both finish and accuracy. Grinding, which was well-developed for the simple plane, cylindrical and conical surfaces so widely used in mechanisms, had to be extended to threads and gears so that they could be finished after heat-treating. Sometimes the gear teeth themselves were ground. For other applications, it was sufficient to improve the accuracy of the gear cutters. Attempts to produce gear hobs, free of the imperfections and distortions introduced by heat-treatment, led to another return to the use of the master lead screw. Figure 20 illustrates a machine having this feature, which was patented in 1932 by Carl G. Olson. In speaking of the spindle-driving mechanism disclosed in earlier patents, the patent goes on to say, This driving mechanism includes an integral spindle, 20, one extremity thereof being designed for supporting a hob, 22, and the other extremity thereof being formed so as to present a lead screw, 24. The spindle, 20, is mounted between a bearing, 26, and a bearing, 28, the latter bearing providing a nut in which the lead screw, 24, rotates. From the description thus far given, it will be apparent that the rotation of the lead screw, 24, within the bearing or nut, 28, will cause the hob to be moved axially. The lead of the screw, 24, being equal to the lead of the thread and the hob. Claim 8, which concludes the descriptive portion of the patent, states in part, in a hob grinding machine of the class described, a rotary work-supporting spindle, means for effecting longitudinal movement of the spindle, a tool holder for supporting a grinding wheel in operative position with respect to the work supported by the spindle, during the rotary and longitudinal movement thereof. Even before this patent was applied for, another patent was pending for the purpose of modifying the pitch of the lead screw without the use of change gears, in spite of the wide acceptance of such gear mechanisms for over a hundred years. Figure 21 shows a plan view of the machine, and Figure 22, a detailed view of the sign bar mechanism actuated by the master screw, 6, 
to modify the effective pitch of the lead screw in accordance with the realities of practice as stated in the preamble of the patent. This invention relates to material working machines, and particularly to machines such as hob grinders and the like, wherein the work is reciprocated through the agency of a lead screw. In the manufacture of hobs, it is common practice to employ the same machine for grinding hobs of varied diameters, and in order to employ such a machine in this manner, the pitch of the lead screw thereof which actuates the work carrier must conform to the axial pitch of the hob to be ground. This will be readily apparent when it is understood that the helix angles of hobs vary in accordance with the diameters and consequently the difference between the normal pitch and the axial pitch correspondingly varies. While the requirement for the normal pitch may be the same for hobs of different diameters, it is necessary to change the axial pitch in accordance with a change in the hob diameter, and this axial pitch of the hob is equal to the pitch of the lead screw which actuates the work carrier in grinding machines heretofore used. Hence, in order to adapt such machines to cover a wide range of leads, it is necessary to provide a large number of interchangeable lead screws, and obviously this represents a large investment, and the interchanging of these screws requires the expenditure of considerable time in setting up the machine for each job. Thread Grinding Machines were being designed concurrent with the development of hob grinding machines. Many were entirely concerned with features peculiar to the problems of wheel dressing and to automatic characteristics. An invention to embody the use of a master screw and concerned with the precision grinding of worm threads for use in gearing was patented by Frederick A. Ward in this era. That part of the invention pertaining to the use of a master screw a rotary work holder mounted on said carriage and provided with a driving spindle, an exchangeable master screw and stationary nut detachably secured to said spindle and head, is shown in figure 23. Machines embodying the principle of the master lead screw are found in constant use by industry at the present time for specialized application. Whenever technological changes again reopen the topic of thread cutting, to a new degree of accuracy, or call for a re-evaluation of popular methods for any other reason, we may expect to see another resurgence of the master screw method, for no other design eliminates so many variables or rests on such firm and fundamental natural principles as the machine of Das Mitterlauterlich Hausbuch of 1483, the earliest such machine now known. End of section 10.